once upon a time, there lived an emperor who loved the finer things of life, especially fine clothing. His love for nice things, well, it was well known. And so one day, a particularly clever merchant approached the king with a proposition. He would sell the emperor the finest suit of clothes anyone had ever seen. The catch was that only the wise could see this outfit. It would be invisible to fools. So said the merchant. And so the king, not wanting to be thought, you know, foolish, decided to purchase this magical suit. Upon his purchase, he then slid into the unseen fabric and called for a parade to display his marvelous outfit. And so he paraded through his kingdom, quite literally in his underwear. And yet, all the people looked on, knowing that only a fool wouldn't be able to see his outfit. And so they said one to another, Isn't it wonderful? Oh, I've never seen a, you know, a, I don't know, what do people wear, like a scarf or a brooch such as this. It's fantastic. Until one young boy called out, something akin to, what are you talking about? He's not wearing any clothing. And at once the ruse was up. It's hard to tell the truth, especially when everyone around you is choosing to believe a lie. And yet the truth is good and beautiful. It deserves to be told. It is true, after all. Have you ever tried to tell the truth to someone who doesn't want to or, or cannot see it? You perhaps know that telling the truth takes a, a certain courage, a boldness. As we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, in the final installment of our study of the book, I want to call to your attention two things. Uh, primarily, we want to finish up what we were talking about the last time we were in Ephesians together, which is, is prayer, the necessity of prayer to the Christian life. Uh, but also, I want to bring to your attention uh, the need for boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. We are in the midst of that section on spiritual warfare, and the main idea over the whole section as the book closes remains the same. You have it on your insert there. The church must depend on the Lord's strength in order to stand and fight against her foes, those spiritual forces of evil. I want to exhort you in light of that to be strong in the Lord. Depend on Jesus. Stand. Fight. And as we'll see today, fight by prayer, encouragement, and boldness. You can see the outline there before you. It's quite simple. We will pray, set the stage one more time, and then work through the text together. 
Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. We thank you that you have promised not only to meet us here, but to meet us here in a special way. We thank you that Jesus has not only promised to be with us wherever we go, but that he has promised to meet us here in a special way when we are all gathered together to worship him, to give him the glory and honor he is due. And so we ask, Father, that indeed you would send your Holy Spirit to stir up our affections for Christ and for one another during this time. Pray that you would cause us to, to see and savor who you are. You are the God who breaks sinners out of prison. You're the God who brings the dead to life. You're the God who rescues people like us and adopts us into your family so that we might call you Father. Meet us now in your word. Change us. Shape us. Break us where we need to be broken. Bind up our wounds and heal us where we need to be healed. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's set the stage one last time in the book of Ephesians, and this is your last time to shine. Hopefully you can approve upon uh, the last effort, which wasn't so great. Uh, we have said, or we have tried to, break apart Ephesians into two halves, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 7. We, we've called the first half, this is your time, the first half we've called, and the second half we've called, devotion. Devotion. What's the second half we've called, devotion. Doctrine and devotion. So those first three chapters, we've tried to outline the doctrine or simplify it by saying, God has chosen to rescue and adopt into his family all who believe in Jesus. He has caused us, which is everyone who has ever lived, us who were dead in our sins to be alive in Christ. Everyone who calls out to Christ as a Christian has been made alive by God. We were dead and we've been made alive. He's made us alive and he has adopted us into his one family. That, that's kind of the doctrine part. And if we look at the second three chapters, it's going to outline for us parts of our devotion. Now, these things are not, it's not a list that Paul's giving us that tells us how to become a Christian or how to make ourselves right with God. It tells us how to live now that we have been made right with God. So the first part tells us we've been adopted into the family of God. And then the second half is telling us how to live up to the family name, how to take on some of these family characteristics. And we've, we've pointed out plenty of times before the book of Ephesians is in many ways built around this verb, walk. And walk is simply a Hebrew idiom to describe how we live. And so you see right there at the beginning of chapter 4, we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. We are to walk worthy, building up the body of Christ in love, casting off false doctrine. We're to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, you see in verse 17 of chapter 4, no longer walk as the world does, darkened in its understanding, but we are to walk as those who were once blind but now see, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. We're to walk in love as Jesus has loved us. We're to walk as children of the light. We were once darkness. Remember, not in the darkness. We were darkness. But now we are in light. We are light in the Lord. So we've moved from being darkness to being light. We're to walk as children of the light. And then the final time the verb walk shows up is in verse 15 of chapter 5. And we are told there to walk not as unwise, but as wise. We're to walk wisely in light of the evil days in which we live. And so Paul fills out what it looks like to walk wisely. He tells us that we're not to be foolish, but to know what the will of the Lord is. That we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He explains what that looks like a little bit. And then finally, he gives us this last injunction about what it looks like to walk wisely in verse 10 of chapter 6 as he gets ready to conclude the book. He says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul reveals to us, as 21st century Westerners, that we need to reorient our thinking. What would have been obvious to the Ephesians, that there is an unseen realm that impacts our realm, isn't so obvious to us. In fact, all the devil talk seems a little weird. But Paul wants us to know that if if we have chosen to follow Jesus, if we have taken up our crosses and we are following Christ, that we have painted a target on our backs. That indeed, we have an enemy who seeks to destroy us and to divide the church. He assumes, and we ought to know what verse 12 says that we do not struggle or wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. You know, well, what is that? It's spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the unseen realm. What Paul wants us to know on the front end here before he gets to all this spiritual armor discussion is that we are at war. We've talked about this uh, by bringing up, of course, Lord of the Rings in that wonderful scene that when Aragorn is talking to the king of Rohan, and the king of Rohan does not want to go out to war against Sauron and Soromon. And so he tells Aragorn, I will not risk open war. And Aragorn responds to him, Open war is upon you whether you will risk it or not. And so we have said, if you are a Christian, if you are part of the church, you are at war whether you recognize it or not. And in fact, one of those schemes of the devil is to convince you that you are not at war. To lull you into a false sense of security so that you might forget God and ignore His workings. We are a people at war. But we are not a people without resources. Paul gives us that command in verse 10, telling us how to walk wisely in these evil days. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We are to depend in this spiritual battle, uh, not on ourselves, but on God. This isn't a call to willpower, but a call to depend on God's power. Remember we talked about frog and toad and saying our own willpower isn't going to work. We need to depend on the strength of God's might. He's not telling us to pump the iron and try harder. He's saying depend on the strength of God. And you might well, Paul, how do I depend on the strength of God? What does that mean? And so he tells us in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. This is how you will stand against the schemes of the devil. And to put on the armor of God, we might say, what does that mean? It means simply to appropriate the truths of our Christian faith. It means to step into the reality of the grace we have received. He's giving us a metaphor of armor here, but he uses the same picture elsewhere in Scripture, right? In Romans 13, we're told to put on the armor of light, to put on Christ. Earlier in Ephesians in chapter 4, we're told to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And the idea here is the same, though some of the imagery is different. To appropriate the characteristics of our Christianity. We're to not just know about grace and the doctrine of grace. We are to live in light of those truths and devotion to Christ. We take up the whole armor of God. And it is by our dependence on God that we are able to endure to the end. And you'll notice, the way that we employ this divine armor, the way that it is powered, is by prayer. You see in verse 17, we're, we're told to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit is not you know, Zelda, sword that seals the darkness, this glowing thing that comes to you. It is the Word of God. The sword of Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so we see that, that what makes the armor effective for us is prayer. The way that we depend on God's strength is by praying to God. We see, and we talked about last week, the call here is to pray at all times, and to pray for all things, and to pray for all the saints. What does it mean to pray at all times? We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. To pray at all times doesn't mean that you, you never stop praying, you never stop giving thanks to God. It means that you have a posture of dependence on God, that you are aware of who God is all the time, on one hand. And on the other hand, it means you pray regularly. You know, Paul says earlier on in the letter, I do not cease to give thanks for you. It doesn't mean he never stops giving thanks for the Ephesians. He means that he does it regularly. So too for us, if we are to be a praying people, we ought to always be God-oriented. We should be regularly praying about everything at all times. And one of those things we're called to pray for at all times is for all the saints. You see that there in verse 18. And this call to pray for all the saints reminds us of the communal nature of Christianity. We've said before, Christianity is personal, but it's not private. No one can come to Jesus without also coming to the church. To be united to Jesus is to be united to His body. And what does the Bible say is the body of Christ? His church. The church is the body of Christ. And so to try and have a Christ without the church, well, that's to try something different than the Christianity of the Bible. We have an emphasis here once more, sort of a spotlight put on our connection to one another. Paul assumes that we will be connected to one another and praying for one another. He says, pray for all the saints. And the place we're going to do that most readily and most ordinarily is in our life together as a local church. And of course, we're going to pray for other Christians and other churches and, and missionaries. But on the whole, most of our prayers for all the saints, well, they'll, they'll be, or should be, for one another. For those we are morally proximate to. Those people that we have committed our lives to. We, when we've joined the church, we've said, I'm going to be connected to you, and I want you to hold me accountable to following Jesus. And so we pray for one another in that endeavor. We encourage one another in it. Paul, I think, assumes the Ephesians have that Philippians 2 DNA that we, we so want for ourselves. In our Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying you're in Christ, therefore, if you're in Christ and in the Spirit, you're going to have a concern for one another. You're going to care about one another. You're going to be connected in such a way that enables you to pray effectively for all the saints. I mean, and Paul exemplifies this. 
Paul is in chains. Regardless of whether the chains are metaphorical or actual, he's under house arrest when he pens this book. And yet, he's concerned with the Ephesians, with a church he planted not so long ago. He writes them this book. He wants them to know right doctrine, practice right devotion. He wants them to know Christ more. Now, I love, I love Paul's prayers throughout the book. One of my favorites is in chapter 3, in verse 18 in particular. He's praying for the Ephesians, and he basically, I'm praying that you, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A lot of these, I am praying that God would give you the capacity to understand the depths and the weight of His love for you. Paul is in chains and he is praying for this people, for all the saints. Not just that, he's, he's concerned with encouraging them. You see this in his final greetings in verses 21 through 22. It seems, you know, not that big of a deal to take it or leave it, but it, it's an important part of the letter. It gives us insight into to Paul. He says, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, what a great name. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul is in chains and he is concerned about the Ephesians. He's praying for them regularly. He's writing this letter to them and he wants to know how they are doing, yes, but he wants them to know how he is doing. See, he's, he's sent Tychicus not just to bring the letter, but to update the Ephesians on his life and to encourage their hearts. He's connected to them. This is part of what it means to be connected to other Christians. Is that we would share our lives one with another. Sometimes we don't know how to pray for one another because we haven't done the hard work of being intentional in building relationships with one another. Perhaps we're too selfish to ask, what's going on in your life? How can I, how can I pray for you? Paul is concerned to update the Ephesians on his life so they might know how to pray for him. It's a good thing for us to tell others how we are doing, to share our struggles. I mean, Paul isn't embarrassed here about his imprisonment situation. In fact, he gets, he's very vulnerable. He says, pray also for me. I need your prayer. I think so many of us are so arrogant that we act as if we don't need the prayers of others. Others of us are too afraid or embarrassed to ask for prayer. I can't, I can't, let, you know, can't let them know I'm struggling with that. What will they think of me? 
We need to be a people who are committed to being vulnerable to one another, to being connected in Christ. You also see he sends Tychicus to encourage their hearts. I love this. Just Tychicus showing up is an encouragement to the Ephesian church. This is an underrated method of encouragement, is just being there. Just showing up. One of the most important things you can do as a Christian is gather with other Christians to worship the God that you proclaim to love on the Lord's day. And this simple act is encouraging. Think about it. When you come, the more brothers and sisters that you see gathered here, the more encouraged you become. God has designed us that way, to encourage one another. You want to you be encouraging? You know, no one suffered from too much encouragement. Just step one, just show up on the Lord's day. Come not, not just to worship God and to sing songs and to hear His Word proclaimed. Come to do that, yes, but come also to worship God by obeying His command to love others, to love one another, to encourage one another, to build up the body in love. It's a a simple thing. And yet it is a profound thing. Simply be present for the worship of our great God and King. Tychicus encourages the hearts of the Ephesians. That's why he was sent by Paul. We can each week encourage one another. Lift our hearts up by sharing our lives, telling each other how we're doing. And just being present for the worship of the Lord. I wonder, are you committed to being connected to the brothers and sisters that God has placed in your life? Church, if we are to enjoy all the blessings that God has for us in the local church, we must commit ourselves to being connected to and accountable to one another. We have to be all in. If we are just casual about our connection to the church, then then we will not get very connected. We want to be encouraging one another by being connected to one another, sharing our lives, by being present. Look for ways to encourage one another. So write somebody a note this week. Make that phone call. Have coffee or or dinner. Send an email. Be intentional about engaging other members of our community here with your own life and with Christ. Be vulnerable like Paul. Invite others in. Invite others to pray for you and to pray for them. You see, Paul, as we already pointed out, has has prayed throughout the book, and he closes the book in prayer. You see this in verse 23. 
says, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. As you go, that doesn't sound like much of a prayer. It sounds more like a benediction. And you're right. It is a benediction. But do you know what a benediction is? We throw this word around. We have one at the end of our service. But I don't think we've much thought about it. A benediction is nothing more than a prayer that is invoking God's blessing on others. And so what Paul is, is praying here with this benediction, he's asking God to give peace to the brothers and love with faith. See it? It's also really neat, if you remember how he opened the book of Ephesians, he says something akin to, I should look so I don't mess it up. He says, grace to you and peace, right? He says he's an apostle to the saints that are faithful. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm praying grace and peace for you. I'm writing this letter to you that's aimed at bringing you grace and peace. Here I am, uh, mission accomplished. You've had some grace and peace, and now I'm praying grace and peace to you again at the end of the book. It's as if, I don't know, Paul wants us to experience grace and peace in light of the wonderful truths that are outlined in this book. He wants us to remember that Christ has saved us from our sins and brought us peace with God and with one another, that we are one body in Christ. It really is a wonderful prayer. Paul is always praying for this church. And we, we want to be a pre- people of prayer. Paul's not our only example. I think of, of Jesus, who prayed often. But one of my favorite prayers of Jesus comes in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and I'll just read to you verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, and he's actually, he says, behold, behold, Satan demanded to have you. It's easy to misread this text because we, we almost picture it as if Jesus is only talking to Simon Peter. But the reality is, when it says Satan demanded to have you, the you here is plural. And so Jesus is addressing Simon, Peter, as the spokesperson of the disciples, together with all of the other disciples. And so, you know, if we can get our kind of rednecky version of the Bible here, we say, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all y'all. With me? So that he might sift all y'all like wheat. And the idea here of separating like wheat is to separate you from your faith in Jesus and to separate you one from another. Satan is out to destroy the faith of Christians and to divide the church. So, so one more time, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan is demanded to have all y'all, that he might sift all y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love Jesus. I love this about him. He knows that Peter and all the disciples, all of them are going to desert him. Sometimes we focus on Peter's denials. Yes, that happens. But everybody else, they tuck tail and run too. Jesus knows he's going to be abandoned and left alone. He even tells them that. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you 
I will pray for you. I love this about Jesus. He sees us in all our failures, in all our idiosyncrasies and weirdness, and he loves us still, resolves to pray for us still. Love the image of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. He is our great high priest who ever lives to plead for us. Jesus prays not just for, for Peter and the disciples at, this point in, at that point in history, but he prays for you and for me. Christian, Jesus loves you. You have, you have to get a hold of this. I say it all the time, but just we have to get a hold of this idea that Jesus loves us just as much on our worst day as he does on our best day. Jesus loves Simon Peter just as much when he's about to deny him as he does when Simon Peter is walking on the water towards him. Christian, Jesus loves you and prays for you. I like to, in this particular section, he says, when you've turned, when, when you get right again, strengthen your brothers. Encourage the other disciples that I've prayed for. Friends, Jesus' response in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, and his response here to the disciples, when something goes off the rails, Jesus' response is to pray. It's to pray and to lean on the Word of God. Think about him not just in the Garden of Gethsemane or, or on the cross, but, but even in that first temptation, when he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, he responds with the Word of God and prayer. And wouldn't you know it, what are those weapons that we are equipped with? Verse 17, helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. We can follow Jesus' example in this so that we might stand against the schemes of the evil one. Friends, we are not in the Christian life alone. We're together in this war. And to get through it, we will need to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, and to pray for one another. I mean, the disciples needed prayer, and the Apostle Paul is humble enough to ask for prayer. What makes you think that you don't need to ask for prayer? The evil one is loosing arrows and working at sifting and dividing us. We talked previously about how strange a season it has been for our church these last few months. Lost fathers and mothers and sisters. There have been betrayals and loss of job. There are besetting illnesses and besetting sins. Satan has been working to sift, to destroy faith, and to divide us. Friends, we must pray if our lives depended on it. Imagine you were really, really sick. And someone came to you and said, look, I know you're really sick. 
It's terminal. But here is just one magic pill. If you take this pill every day, you will not die. Would you ever forget to take that pill? I mean, no, it would be the first thing you did in the morning, right? Alarm's going off and you're dry swallowing it. You don't want to forget to take the pill. Friends, our lives, spiritual lives, depend on us depending on God. Depend on prayer. We need to, to stop viewing prayer as an auxiliary to the Christian life. To follow Jesus, to be a person and a people of prayer. I love what John Piper says on this. He says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. You know, in his very Piper-esque way, he says something like, life is war, you know. That's not all it is. It certainly is that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Friends, do you treat prayer like a wartime walkie-talkie or domestic intercom? Is prayer essential to your life or is it, eh, it's optional? Is it your first response or your last resort? We need to be strong in the Lord. We need to be strong in the Lord together if we are to stand. Therefore, we must pray at all times for all things and for all the saints. Ask one another, how can I pray for you? Ask one another, will you pray for me? And then this is going to sound wild. And then pray together. Pray together. We need to pray for one another as we are connected to one another. And we also need to pray something specifically that I don't think we often pray for. But Paul does here in verse 19. Look with me. He says, And pray also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. for which I am an ambassador in chains, so that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It really is a strange juxtaposition, an ambassador of Christ in chains. That's not how you treat ambassadors. And typically, you treat them really well. But here's Paul in chains, praying for the Ephesians, encouraging the Ephesians. And he says, will you pray for me? Here's his vulnerability. And what, what does it he want? Does it, he wants freedom from these chains. A few extra meals. No. Boldness. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. 
Paul wants more of what got him into jail in the first place. He says, I'm suffering for the gospel, so what you need to pray for me is that I would continue to declare the gospel boldly. So that it might bring me more suffering, but what's most important to me is not my comfort. What's most important to me is the clear proclamation of God's Word. To make clear that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That the light came into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I need to make clear that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross for sins, was in the tomb for three days, and then He got up again. That Jesus lives, and therefore the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Him. Paul wants to make clear to all of them, to everyone who will listen, you are dead in your sins. You might believe a lie that, that you're not. That God's wrath and judgment are not coming because of your unbelief. But to believe that is to believe a lie. You're like the emperor parading around in your underwear. You must turn from your sin in repentance and put on Christ. Put on the righteous robes of Christ so that you might live. This is the good news that Paul is proclaiming. Remember when he says the mystery of the gospel, we, we know from chapter 3 he's not saying, we don't know what the gospel is, it's a mystery. Mystery in the New Testament, it refers to something that was once hidden and is now revealed. People were not expecting a crucified Messiah who would reconcile both Jew and Gentile and peoples from all nations in him. The point here is that everyone must be saved through faith in Christ crucified and raised. Paul is asking for boldness. And so we should pray for boldness for ourselves and one for another. Non-Christian, I've just laid out the gospel for you. I pray that you would believe it. Christian, this time of year, this Advent season, affords to you and to us as a church great opportunities to speak of Christ. To speak of Christ to, to non-Christians in our lives. And also to casual Christians or cultural Christians maybe. What I mean by that terminology is those Christians who claim Christ but are cut off from his church and cut off from the Christian life. This is a time for us to challenge non-Christians to repent and believe and to challenge those, those, well, you know, I believe in God, but I just, me and Jesus have our own deal, Christians, to obey Jesus. I mean, sure, sure. Maybe you could be a Christian and not be connected to a church. I don't deny it. It's a possibility. But it's not a healthy possibility. And it's not a category that we see in the New Testament. And in the same way, I guess you could be married, a husband could be married to a wife and never go home. It could happen, but that's a really poor relationship. Christians are connected to the church. Look for opportunities, evangelistic opportunities, to share Christ 
both with those who know they don't know Jesus and with those who think they know Jesus but are still walking in darkness. And pray for opportunities to speak of Christ with your family. If you're going to ruin the family dinner, don't ruin it with talk of politics, but with talk of religion. Speak of Jesus. And I know some of you are going, yes, but this is hard. This is so hard. Many of us know what it is to have an opportunity at a family gathering or a gathering with friends to share Christ, have a, a gospel conversation, and, and then to shrink back from it because we are afraid. So maybe the question comes, well, how can I be bold? How can I be brave? There's a scene in the, the last Harry Potter movie that I love. weren't ready for that, were you? No, no. There's a scene in the last Harry Potter movie that I love. And the, the chosen one has been killed and is in the arm of this semi-giant who marches behind the Dark Lord along with all these evil wizards and witches. And the Dark Lord declares, Harry Potter is dead! From now on, you will put your faith in me. And all those who have fought on the side of good stand there with rubble in the background. And the scene is mostly silent and eerie. Until one of the characters begins to limp forward. One of the most cowardly characters throughout the books. Yet he's found this, this bravery. He comes forward and he declares, it doesn't matter that the chosen one, that Harry is dead. His heart beat for us. It's not over. And so he draws a sword ready to once more battle the enemy. I always, I always love that scene because it makes me ask the question, what makes somebody who isn't brave at all to be so bold? I think the answer is this. When we see someone else being brave for us, we are ready to be brave for them. And so when you are finding that cowardice within yourself rather than boldness, this is what I suggest. Look not to your cowardice, but to Calvary, where you see the chosen one of God going into the darkness for you. You see, friends, when we see Jesus being brave for us, well, it will inspire us to be brave for Him. When we think of Jesus bleeding for us, we will be ready to bleed for Him. When we see Jesus dying for us, we will be ready to die with Him. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It means that your life is Christ's. 
that means there's nothing to fear. Yes, people may hurt the body or even your ego, maybe your feelings. But God will raise this body up from the dead. And he will heal you with his word. Church, let's be a people who have sound doctrine and lives devoted to living up to the family name. We've been adopted into the family of God. Let us invite others in. Let us share this good news boldly. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We confess this morning that we have failed to live as we ought. We confess that even during this time, we have found ourselves distracted by bodily ailments and, and by minds that can't sit on one subject at a time. We confess that we are prone to wander and prone to unbelief. We thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive them. We thank you that you love us right where we are and that you love us too much to let us stay where we are, that you are always calling us deeper into Christ, calling us into a greater maturity and a greater joy. Pray that you would help us to, by your Spirit, stand fast against the evil one and his schemes. We pray that you would not allow our faith to be sifted or our church to be divided. We are your people. We pray that you would remind us that we are not merely in a defensive posture, that a sword is for striking, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Remind us that your word works this holiday season as we celebrate that wonderful truth that the word became flesh, tabernacled among us, so that we might live with you through him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.